with Chris, Holy Spirit, thank you so much for Chris. Thank you that you've been speaking to him um, really all through his life for his leadership here. Thank you that he has the mantle of a leader for us. And thank you that we joyfully get to say that we follow him and Alice in their leadership of this church, that we um, we delight in submitting to their to their leadership, following their lead. Bless what he has to say, God. Speak to him, speak to us. Keep our hearts as good soil. Amen. Good morning. Hi. Hi. So we're uh, in this little mini-series through January and February, and we're st- we thought it would be good to start the year by by looking afresh at our identity as a church. And uh, so it's kind of we are dot, dot, dot. And in this, we're looking at our four dreams, which are painted up on the on the landing out there, and they're on the front of the notice sheet, uh, and they shape our focus as a church. Uh, but it's also more than just the dreams. It's sort of stuff on culture as well and, and what we're about. And our, and our theme today is that we are a church who go to deep waters. And that comes from this uh, this uh, vision which is painted behind us in the beach and boat vision. So this was a vision that was given to someone, Pot of Hope, back in 2001, Anna. And, um, and one part of it, it was about several churches actually. And uh, one part of it was about hope and this call to go out to deep waters uh, in these boats. If you want to read the whole thing, it's a, as a blog on our website. And, and by going to deep waters, it meant we go out for, I guess, like deep sea fishing. It's, it's, it's going to some of the harder places, maybe where there's um, less of a quantity of catch, but a higher quality of catch. And it's, and it's about going after people on the edge, people maybe whose society have forgotten and left behind. And that's a bit of our, um, bit of our theme for today. I want to unpack that, and we're going to get into um, some encounters that Jesus had. Uh, but before we do, we're going to watch a little video and um, you might have seen this before. I've played it. For, I don't think I've played it for five years or so. So maybe you haven't. But but it's um, but I can watch it again and again. It makes me cry every time I watch it. This is an American pastor called Tony. Or no, I think he's a sociologist called uh, Tony Campolo. And um, this is a little story that he tells. Honolulu. <laughs> hey, sometimes you get Chicago. Sometimes you get Honolulu. You go to Honolulu, you wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning if you're from the East Coast because of the time difference, and I, I was hungry. I went looking for something to eat up a side street. I found a greasy spoon. I went in. There were no booths, just a row of stools in front of the counter. I sat down. There was nobody in the place. I, I didn't touch the menu. It was one of those plastic menus, you know, and grease had piled up on it. And I knew that if I opened the thing, something extraterrestrial would have crawled out. <laughs> this fat guy with a greasy apron, unshaved, cigar comes out, puts the cigar down and says, what do you want? And I said, a cup of coffee and a donut. He poured the coffee, and then he did this. <laughs> and he picked up the donut. <laughs> I hate that. So I'm sitting there, 3.30 in the morning, munching on my dirty donut. <laughs> Went into this place come about 10 or 11 prostitutes. And they sat on either side of me. And it was a small place. And I tried to disappear. The one next to me was especially boisterous. And she said to her friend, tomorrow's my birthday. I'm going to be, I'm going to be 39. And her friend said, so what do you want me to do? Sing happy birthday? So you're going to be 39. You want a cake? You want a party? First woman said, look, I don't want anything. I'm just telling you it's my birthday. Why do you have to hurt my feelings? And then she added, 
I've never had a birthday party in my whole life. I don't expect to have one now. That did it. I waited until they left. And then I called Harry over. I said, do they come in here every night? He said, yeah. I said, the one right next to me. He said, Agnes. I said, it's her birthday tomorrow. Harry, what do you say we decorate this place? And when she comes in tomorrow night, we have a little party for her. She's never had a party in her whole life. He grabbed my hand and squeezed it and said, Mr. That's beautiful. Beautiful. She ain't come out here. This guy wants to throw a birthday party for Agnes. It's her birthday tomorrow. She came out and she said, oh, mister, that's brilliant. Nobody ever does anything for Agnes, and she's one of the good people in this town. I know, I know what she does to make money, but she's a good person. I said, can I decorate the place? She said, to your heart's content. I said, I'm going to bring a big birthday cake. Harry said, oh, no, the cake's my thing. Oh, jeez. <laughs> so I got there the next morning at about 2.30. I bought this crepe paper at, the, at the, the Kmart. I strung it across the place. I made a big sign, happy birthday, Agnes. Put it on the mirror behind the counter. I had the place spruced. It was ready. Jan, who did the cooking, had gotten the word out on the street. By 3.15, every single prostitute in Honolulu was squeezed into this diner. It was wall-to-wall prostitutes. And me! 3.30 in the morning, the door opens. In comes Agnes and her friends. I've got everybody set, everybody ready. As they come to the door, we yell, Happy birthday, Agnes! And start cheering like mad. I've never seen anybody so stunned in my life. Her knees buckled. They studied her. They got her down on a stool and we started singing, Happy birthday, happy birthday, happy birthday to you. And they brought out the cake with the candles. That was it. She lost it and started to cry. Harry just stood there with the cake, with all the candles. Said, Knock it off. Come on, Magnus, knock it off and blot the candles. Come on, blot the candles. She tried, but she couldn't do it, so he blew out the candles. He gave her the knife and said, now cut the cake. Come on now, cut the cake, Agnes, cut the cake. She sat for a long moment, and then she turned to me, and she said, Mister, I really don't want to cut the cake. Is it okay if I don't cut the cake? I said, it's your cake. It's your cake. You can do with it what you want. She said, I want to take it home. I want to show it to my mother. Is that okay? I said, sure. She stood up. I said, do you have to do it now? She said, I live two doors down. Let me take the cake to her. And, and I promise I'll bring it right back. I promise. She picked up the cake like it was the Holy Grail. And she pushed her way through the crowd and out the door. And as the door swung slowly shut, there was dead silence. You talk about an awkward silence. All of us were just standing there, stunned. I didn't know what to say, so... I finally said, uh, what, do you, what, do you, what do you say we pray? <laughs> We're looking back on it now. A sociologist leading a prayer meeting with a bunch of prostitutes in a diner at 3.30 in the morning. It was the right thing to do. And I prayed that God would deliver her from what filthy men had done to her, probably starting when she was... She was too young to even know what was going on. That's how these things start. You know, some 
kid, 11, 12 years old, gets messed over by some filthy slob and, and her self-image is destroyed and she's ruined and we blame her when we ought to be blaming him. And I pray that God would make her new because we're here to declare the good news. And no matter where you've been or what you've done, Jesus can make you new. When I finished the prayer, Harry leaned across the counter and said, Hey, Camp Paulo, you told us you were a sociologist. You're a preacher. What kind of church you preach in? And in one of those moments, when you come up with just the right words, I said, I... I, I preach in a church that throws birthday parties for whores at 3.30 in the morning. <laughs> I'll never forget his response. Never. He said, no, you don't. No, you don't. He said, I would join a church like that. <laughs> wouldn't we all? Wouldn't we all love to belong to a church that threw birthday parties for whores at 3.30 in the morning? I got news for you. I got news for you. That is the kind of church that Jesus came to create. I don't know where we got this other one that's half country club. But Jesus came to create a people that would bring parties to those who have no parties. Celebration into the lives of uh, people who have nothing to celebrate. If all you've got to offer is a bowl of soup and some clothes, it's not enough. Jesus came and said, I have come that my joy might be in you and that your joy might be full. And we've got to do more than just give them bread and clothes. We've got to bring love and joy into their lives. Isn't that it? Isn't that Jesus? That's the Jesus we know and follow, isn't it? So cool, so moving. I made a little list of um, a few things that came to mind that some of you, people in Hope, uh, have done, do, um, in terms of going to deep waters. And this isn't by no means an exhaustive list. It was a few things that came to mind. But these are some examples from Hope. Bringing humanitarian aid to a war zone. Fostering children who've had a troubled start to life. Creating solutions for those left behind in the city and country with housing and homelessness. Choosing careers and jobs working with the vulnerable when you could be getting paid more and having an easier time somewhere else. Fighting for justice for those who've been badly treated. Moving to live and immerse yourselves in a disadvantaged part of the city. Mentoring people coming out of prison. Traveling to remote parts of the world, remote parts of the world to help people who cannot help themselves. Reparenting people whose lives have been messed up by addiction. Working with children and young people who've been excluded from school. Giving up days to volunteer in food banks. Giving up sleep and committing time to pray. Visiting and giving gifts to people in prison, feeding the hungry, learning languages and understanding cultures of people from different worlds to us so that we can help them. Training and counselling so we can help people work through their stuff. Working through our own stuff so we can be free to help others. Opening our doors to the homeless. Taking a hit on our company profits because we've shown undeserved kindness to an employee's family. Lobbying the government on behalf of the vulnerable. Showing mercy to people when they haven't deserved it. Welcoming surprising people into our homes. Shaping and influencing city and national policy to protect the vulnerable. Great. It's awesome. It's happening. And, it's, and so this is really wanting to uh, encourage us in this, in this vein that we've been pursuing for, for, for many years. And it's wanting to give permission for more of it. 
and say, this is, uh, this is, this is the heart of Jesus. This is his priority. Those on the edge. And we are authorized and we're, we're commissioned to go out to the hard places, the difficult places, and to take on the big challenges that are impossible without the supernatural intervention of God. Because we carry that supernatural presence and power of God within us. And so to help us to, um, help us to grow in this and help us to, um, be sharpened in this. Obviously, our role model is Jesus, and we go to the Bible where we see his life to, to learn from his example. And we're going to go to Mark chapter 4, and uh, we're going to go, see so if you want to find it. There's four biographies of Jesus, uh, which start the New Testament, which is halfway through the Bible. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We're going to look at Mark's version of it. Um, and if you've got a green Bible like this nearby and want to follow its page, Actually, we're going to go to the end of Mark 4. So it's page 764 in my one. And I'm going to take us through this fairly fast. Would you mind putting the PowerPoint up, please, Michael? Thank you. So... So Mark chapter 4, just a bit of context, is Jesus is out preaching and he's out doing miracles and it's, and he's on the, this is the, um, this is the river, uh, sorry, the uh, Sea of Galilee here. This, where the red thing is, that's the north end and this is the south end. And this is the, the west, the west bank, the west side of Galilee is kind of, that Jesus' hometown was kind of about there. And, um, he spent a lot of time particularly on that west side, uh, of Galilee, uh, this lake in Israel. And uh, he's been having a lot of a really successful time over there. This massive crowds are listening to him. He's being, his message is being really well received. And uh, and it says uh, and it starts off and it says. So we're going to start from verse thirty-five. Um, As evening came, so this is marked at four verse thirty-five. As Jesus came, Jesus said to his disciples, "Let's cross to the other side of the lake." So they took Jesus in the boat and started out leaving the crowds behind him. So the, the, the first point is, um, I was just saying how well this clicker works. We never have to talk about these sort of things. Huh. Have we got any, any help here, Michael? There should be, a, oh, there we go. So um, the first point is, is, is that, um, so he's got these crowds on one side, and, and, and we kind of see as we, read, as we go on to carry on reading, it, it looks like God the Father has said to Jesus, leave these crowds, and go uh, across the lake. I've got something for you to do on the other side of the lake, on the on the east side of the lake here. He doesn't doesn't say exactly what God said to him, but we see particularly in John's gospel that Jesus just does what God is leading him to do, what the Father is telling him to do. That's his pattern. And Jesus very deliberately here pulls himself away from the many people, and he goes after. Uh, he's clearly got one person or one particular purpose in mind as he goes across the lake. And we see this a lot, don't we, in Jesus? We see him often taking his disciples aside, or we sang that song, um, Oh, the overwhelming, and there's that, uh, and there's that line, um, leaves the 99, and how he leaves the, leaves the 99 sheep, doesn't he? Jesus describes that, tells that parable of leaving the 99 sheep to go after the one lost sheep. And, and time and again, we see Jesus prioritizing uh, just one person or, uh, for the, or someone that marginalized for the sake of many. So we see here, um, Jesus going across, He's going across the lake, and he's got a deliberate purpose in that. Verse 37. But soon a, force, a, a fierce storm came up. High waves were breaking into the boat, and it began to fill with water. 
Jesus was sleeping at the back of the boat with his head on a cushion. The disciples woke him up shouting, Teacher, don't you care that we're about to drown? When Jesus woke up, he rebuked the wind and said to the water, Silence, be still. Suddenly the wind stopped and there was a great calm. Then he asked them, Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? The disciples were absolutely terrified. Who is this man? They asked each other. Even the wind and waves obey him. So we see that Jesus has got this clear intention to go across the lake and he's, he's, got, a, he's, got, a, he's got a purpose, he's got a mission that God has given him to do. And as he goes, there's a, a storm. And uh, I don't know what this storm is. Perhaps it's a, because as we'll see, this guy is really oppressed by demonic spirits. Maybe this, is, maybe this storm is a sort of spiritual attack. Maybe, the, maybe the, we live in a world that has two realms. Maybe the enemy knew that Jesus was going to come and bring life to this man. So he sent a storm to try and stop him. Perhaps that's what happened. Perhaps it's just a stormy part of the country. And, and actually, you know, bad weather just happens. We live in a world where, where, um, where things go wrong. That weather, weather they can often be bad. It doesn't really matter whether it's a, a supernatural storm to, to try and stop Jesus or whether it's just a storm because it's the time of day or the time of year or storms happened on Galilee. But interesting to see Jesus' response to the storm, isn't it? And um, how often do we maybe set out on, a, on, a, on, a, on a, a work of faith that God has set up for us, something God's told us to do, and things go wrong? Maybe, our, I don't know, we get sick or our family, something happens. Um, and we think, oh, wh- what's our response there? Do we think, oh, maybe this isn't God's will after all. Maybe it's a bit too tough and actually I'll just, just step back and, and stay at home. Interesting that Jesus doesn't let that, this storm is not a, is not a sign for him that he's doing something, you know, not in line with God's will, not in line with God's leading, or, or he just perseveres, uh, through this storm. He's got an intentionality about this, uh, this mission that he's on. And then they get to the other side of the lake, they get to this, this, uh, it's probably around here, this is the northeast corner of Galilee. It could have been the southeast corner, that's quite, people aren't quite sure, but it's around here somewhere. So he crosses this big lake, it's about, I think it's about five, five miles across, something like that. Or if he'd gone that way, it's more like ten miles. Uh, so it's quite a decent trip um, in his in his boat. And um, for, uh, chapter five, verse one. So they arrived at the other side of the lake, in the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus climbed out of the boat, a man possessed by an evil spirit came out from a cemetery to meet him. This man lived among the burial ca- among the burial caves or the tombs and could no longer be restrained, even with a chain. Whenever he was put into chains and shackles, as he often was, he snapped the chains from his wrists and smashed the shackles. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Day and night he wandered among the burial caves and in the hills, howling and cutting himself with sharp stones. So this man is um, is, is deeply uh, deeply marginalised. Can you can you imagine this? Can you imagine his life his, his lifestyle? So he's he's um, he's doesn't look like he's got any relationship with people. Can you imagine? Can you imagine having to chain someone up to try and keep them calm, keep them from cutting themselves? And he's and he's breaking these chains himself. He's living in the in the place where people are buried. So he's, he's got no, no no family, no people around him. Day and night, he's he's awake and he's crying out in pain and he's and he's cutting himself. He's a really he's a really really deeply tortured man, isn't he? He's got he's, he's not in relationship with anyone. Uh, you know, we, we we all know the the consequence of being deprived of sleep, of maybe being a bit anxious in the night. Uh, this feels like it's a whole different level. This guy is really is um, is really traumatized, really cut off from his friends, from his family. And actually, at that point, Esther, can you jump up and tell us? A, Esther's got another little story. She in the first half she told us a bit about her um, 
her boat that she's part of on a Wednesday afternoon. And, and she's got a story on this, I think, for us. Yes, I, I was just thinking about this. And, and the verse that came to mind was Psalm 68, verse 6. is um, God places the lonely in families. He sets the prisoners free and gives them joy. And a lot of, uh, I'm I'm on that own my own journey myself of what it means to be in family. I think we're all on that. And um, a lot of the guys and the girls that I work with, shame is a huge thing that stops them um, being accepted into fa- into family and being loved. And I know shame is a huge thing for for all of us that prevents us from being fully known and fully loved. And this is one man who's um, come every week to our group for six months. And he was rejected by his family and abused by his family. And he doesn't have any family. And he doesn't really have any friends until he came to us. And um, he's a, a client in, in the Wild Goose. And when he first started coming to the group, he would talk all the time and try and prove himself. And he thought Christianity was all about earning your way to, to God. And and it's been a slow process of, of loving him and giving him space to share his story. And now it's it's... Is, is well for me it's a complete transformation what I've seen in his life of the kind of peace of God and he just seems calm and he seems peaceful and he he doesn't go on and on and on he kind of he's and God and when he speaks about what he's learning from the Bible it's incredible he, the insights he has and and I think the power of family and I think the more the kingdom of God comes on earth the more it looks like family um, it's so powerful, and we see the supernatural in the group as well, and that's wonderful. <laughs> but I think when you know you're fully, fully known and fully loved um, with all the stuff that goes on, that I think that's the most powerful thing, and, and that, for me, is where we're going with this group, actually. What does it mean to look... What does family look like to the most broken um, and people who've never been loved? And I speak to myself as well, and I know we're all on that journey, so... Um, yes, and so when it says, when God puts the lonely in families, he sets the prisoners free and gives them joy. And maybe that means actually when we're in family, <laughs> that's when our prison is broken and we become free and we receive joy by knowing what it means to be loved. So, yeah, that was our little illustration. Thank you. So this man has got has got no family from what we assume and what we see here. He's deeply, deeply marginalized. So verse 6, we carry on reading. When Jesus was still some distance away, the man saw him, ran to meet him and bowed low before him. With a shriek, he screamed. And, and here, we, you know, we hear of this sometimes, don't we, that um, if an evil spirit is in a person, occasionally in the time of prayer, it might be the spirit that speaks rather than the person. You might hear them and speak in a different voice. It's quite disturbing when you hear it. And this is, seems to be what's happening here. So the, with a shriek, he screamed, why are you interfering with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In the name of God, I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had already said to the spirit, come out of the man, you evil spirit. Then Jesus demanded, what is your name? Legion. My name is Legion because there are many of us inside this man. Then the evil spirit begged him again and again not to send them to some distant place. There happened to be a large herd of pigs feeding on the hillside nearby. So listen to those pigs, the spirits begged. Let us enter them. So Jesus gave them permission. The evil spirits came out of the man and entered the pigs. And the entire herd of 2,000 pigs plunged down the steep hillside into the lake and drowned in the water. 
The herdsmen fled to the nearby town and the surrounding countryside, spreading the news as they ran. People rushed out to see what had happened. A crowd soon gathered around Jesus, and they saw the man who'd been possessed by the legion of demons. He was sitting there fully clothed and perfectly sane. He was sitting there fully clothed and perfectly sane, and they were all afraid. Then those who'd seen what happened to the others told the others about the demon-possessed man and the pigs, and the crowd began pleading with Jesus to go away and leave them alone. It's interesting thing here is it seems like um, the people are more concerned about the pigs than they are about this man being transformed. And so I think someone said that, that, that there might be equivalent to about thirty thousand pounds worth of value in those pigs in today's money. So there's quite a lot of quite a lot of value in there. But uh, you've got this man who everyone everyone would presumably have known about this guy. They, you know there were smaller communities in those days, but they more villagey lifestyles. Everyone would have known about this man, and and uh, you know kids would have probably talked about him. That's the man that lives in the tombs, and you hear him shrieking at night. Mummy, what's that noise? Oh, it's the man at the tombs. You know, they would have known about this guy. And suddenly they see him and he's sitting there in his right mind and he's dressed and, his, and there's a different energy. There's a different power about him. You know, he just looks different. But actually the, the worry is, oh gosh, this, you know, yes, he's free, but oh, 30,000 pounds, 20,000 pigs or whatever. 2,000 pigs, sorry. 2,000 pigs. We can't afford to have this uh, miracle worker stick around for long. He's, he's expensive. And, uh, and I think actually we live in a time, don't we, when society really also appreciates uh, uh, the priority of the marginalised and is really and is quite aligned to the heart of God in that. So we're not in a time when we're, you know, so bringing a contrary message on these lines. But uh, but uh, interesting that Jesus' priority is not shaped by what people, how people will respond to him. Again, he's he's not he's not moved by that. Let's carry on reading. So then Jesus, he's done his mission. He's done this, done done what he came to do, and he gets back into the boat. Verse eight, eighteen. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. But Jesus said, no, go home to your family and tell them everything the Lord has done for you and how merciful he's been. So the man started off to visit the ten towns of that region and began to proclaim the great things Jesus had done for him. And everyone was amazed at what he told them. So if this wasn't Jesus doing this, if this wasn't Jesus saying you can't come, I would have thought that's deeply irresponsible. (laughs) You've just delivered a man from these demons. But he needs some follow-up, eh? He needs some, dis- yes, there's deliverance and we have moments when we're dramatically supernaturally set free, but we also need to, dis- we need discipleship. We need pastoral friendship and so on. And, um, I'd have thought, gosh, who's this irresponsible evangelist just going and leaving a guy to fend for himself? He's got post-traumatic stress disorder. He's got massive rejection stuff. He's got to learn to relate to his family. He'll be freaked out at seeing him. There's all sorts of stuff that needs to happen. And I think what's so encouraging about this is that it's, uh, it's the kind of the works of faith jigsaw is that Jesus knew what the Father had told him to do. The Father had said to him, go across to the eastern side of the lake. I've got a work for you to do there. When you're done, you're done. Go back over to the western side again. And and it's easy, particularly actually, because actually working with um, people in the margins, like Esther was talking about, can actually be really full on, really full on. And if we're not careful, it can be really draining to us. Um, that's a, a challenge for people who are particularly very pastoral people, is... Um, you know, you're, you're working with a lot of people who, who are having a hard time and it can be easy to be exhausted and taken out by that. And I think one of the solutions to this is, is, is sticking to closely to God's heart. And it's like, God, what's the work that you've got for me to do? And Jesus did the work that God had for him. And actually there are others, aren't there, who, who, who uh, we carry the spirit of God inside us. So we have this extraordinary ability to see a crisis, to see a problem that is um, too big to be overcome in the natural 
realm. And we can say to that, we can address that in prayer and in faith together as a church. So we, so we have the authority, the ability to take on these massive things. But at the same time, we're not God ourselves. We carry the Spirit of God inside us, but we're not God. And so we, and there's an extent to which we leave things to him. And we see Jesus doing this so well here. Uh, and um, he knows what's his part to do, and he trusts the man's uh, future to God. And then, but the rest of uh, the rest of this little these last few verses that we've read already um, start to show us um, some of what happened. And perhaps this was Jesus' discipleship strategy for this man: you will be healed and restored as you go and tell your family. You, as, as you go and share this with others, that will be part of your journey of restoration. This will be how I'll walk with you through the Holy Spirit in these in these next times. So what does it say? Uh, verse verse 20. So the man started off to visit the ten towns of that region and began to proclaim the great things Jesus had done for him. And everyone was amazed at what he told them. So then Jesus goes back and uh, he's on the, on, on the lake or on the other side by the time this man is starting to get, the, get news around of what happened. And then a few chapters, chapters later, so Jesus stays around the other areas of, of the lake. And then I think it's chapter 7. Um, chapter 7, Jesus goes back over to this east side of, east side of, um, Galilee. Is it chapter 7? Yeah, chapter 7 and chapter 8. He's back on the, and we see, so the beginning of chapter 8, about this time another large crowd had gathered. And we see in chapter 7 and chapter, I won't, won't read it now. So, so end of chapter 7, verse 31. Jesus left Tyre and Sidon and went back over the Sea of Galilee to the Ten Towns, which is the region where this man was. And, uh, and, and immediately a deaf man is brought to him. And, uh, and, and crowds are gathering around him. And, and, and perhaps these crowds are the people that the, the man who is formerly demon-possessed have told about Jesus. We don't know for sure. But maybe these thousands of people that are coming to see Jesus, he then feeds 4,000 people, are the fruits of that man's testimony. So, uh, yes, Jesus goes after the one, but he does it in a way that bears a lot of fruit. So I hope there's some encouragement for us here um, as a church in terms of our works of faith. We go after the one. Let's just go. We go after the one. Uh, leave the crowd behind. We're not put off by storms. The deeply marginalised are the are the are the, are the, pro, the pro, most pro, the highest priority in God's heart. Uh, we don't look for. Uh, appreciation necessarily from society or from people, but from God. And we're part of a jigsaw, aren't we? We don't, we don't do the whole thing ourselves. And, but the wonderful, uh, privilege of being part of, uh, God's work is that there's this fruitfulness that comes. And we see some of that fruit from this, this guy who Jesus prioritized and he seemed to impact a lot of people. So I just want to, you know, encourage you, uh, to, to, to speak to the mountain. Jesus says if you speak to a mountain, you can say be cast into the sea. We can address some of these massive problems that we see around us. We can uh, go to people on the edge, and that's very much a part of our heart as a church. We want to cheer each other on, support and encourage each other. And um, yeah, let's do it.